Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Good to see you. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, th- you, we lost power here just briefly, uh, but it was in the middle of the night, so it came on quickly. So I'm thankful for that, thankful that we can gather and join services, but there's nothing like the power of the Holy Spirit to strangely warm our hearts, right? Yes. If you know, yeah, I hear groans of all, that's really cheesy. That was a John Wesley joke. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm very thankful to be here uh, again with you all. It's just so good to be together. I'm thankful to Pastor Mark Morrison and Kevin Austin, who uh, taught these last two weeks here. And uh, it's two very incredible uh, Sundays together. Isn't it wonderful that we have such a great group of um, really capable preachers and teachers here that are part of our faith family? I am so thankful for that, Uh, and so that's great. I would ask if you would pray for Kevin Austin and Eric Spangler, Darren Land. They're all in Thailand right now with a large gathering of some of the Asia area leaders and pastors. And so just keep them in your prayer as they are all over there, and they're at this really great conference. This is the first of these conferences they're putting together, so just invite you to be prayerful of that. Well, this is week eight of our King David series, and that may seem like a long time, and it is a long time, but uh, Pastor Holly and I were talking about how we have, we've really, there's so much of King David's life that we haven't been able to get to, even though we're on week eight of our series. But it's been good to be able to spend some, some valuable time looking at the life of David. Uh, after today, we will have two more weeks in this King David series, and that'll lead us right up to Advent Sunday. Isn't that crazy that we're almost already to Advent? So can I just be the first one to say to you, Merry Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't believe it. It's crazy. Well, I've been praying a lot for this morning. Uh, I am I'm really excited about it. I think this what we're going to look at today can be really powerful for us. We're going to talk today about a very well-known story from the life of David, probably almost as well-known or more so than his encounter with Goliath. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the story of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And so I would just encourage you at some point uh, this week, go read those chapters together. Uh, we're not going to read all of it because uh, there's a lot to it, uh, but we will look at uh, a good portion of it this morning. But I believe that God can speak powerfully to us in this and through this story, not only in how we live our daily lives but also in how we think about God and what he's done for us. So, the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, it, it occurs later in David's life at this point. It's, he's kind of in his prime as king over Israel, over all of Israel. He's, uh, we know, Scripture tells us at this point, he's a beloved ruler. He's seen as a strong leader and he's wise. Uh, and at this point in the story, the Scripture tells us that it's spring. And David's army has gone to a war with some of the neighboring tribes. But David, this time, doesn't join the fight. He stays back, and he's at his palace. Like I said, he's well-established as king at this point. He doesn't need to prove himself in battle any longer. He's done that multiple times and over years. And these aren't important wars that are being fought either. It's kind of typical for this era and this time for some of these larger nations 
uh, that we might consider in kind of our definition of what a nation is to go to war with smaller neighboring tribes, mostly for resources. They're pillaging, essentially. <laughs> so these aren't, they don't have a lot of weight in terms of the political like uh, uh, aspects of, of uh, major nations going to war together. They're kind of, there's still conflict, there's still war, but they're not as important. So David is not going out to the battlefield. He's staying at his palace. Well, one afternoon while he's walking on the palace roof, which was built high above everything, uh, so that he could see whoever's on top of the tower, on top of the palace, could see out into the courtyard and out into the surrounding villages. Partly this was built this way for safety, so guards could see what was happening. But it also had the effect that whoever was up there could see far beyond the palace walls. And we see, we're told that David looks into the courtyards, into the nearby houses, and he sees a woman bathing. Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4 say this. Late one afternoon... After his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he was looking out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and she and was told, this is, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam and the wife of Uriah, and the, the Hittite. Then David set, sent messengers to get her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, as we are looking at the story, it's kind of jarring for us uh, what, what happens here. And this story gets a lot worse really quickly. We're not used to seeing this kind of David at this point, right? Or at least we thought he was done with all of this type of stuff uh, as he's grown and come into his reign as king. But soon the word comes to David that Bathsheba is pregnant. And so all of a sudden, David's got a big problem. He's got, he goes into problem-solving mode. So the first thing he does is he sends word to Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, to return from the fighting because he wants to get an update about how things are going. And I wonder if for Uriah, this is just really unusual. It's like, as far as we know, Uriah was just a normal soldier. Why is he, why is he getting an audience with the king to update about how things are going? You have generals and messengers and all of that kind of, those kind of people to do this. So very odd that David would call a soldier uh, to come give him an update on how things are going. After their meeting, after this meeting with David, uh, since Uriah is home and likely had been gone for months at this point, David suggests that he goes home, he spends some time to relax, be with his wife, get a good night's sleep and some good food. Take the opportunity to rest and to be with your wife. And if that happened, then David could say that the child that was to be born is the child of Bathsheba and Uriah, problem solved. But you know the story. Uriah is a loyal soldier at this point, and part of the culture of the army at this point is that if there is a war on or a fight on, soldiers will not go home to their wives, to their families, to rest and recuperate. There was two reasons for this, because the other soldiers were out there fighting, roughing it, and for the nation of Israel, the presence of God was out there on the battlefield, likely in the, with uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So the text tells us that he chooses not, he says he will not go home, and he sleeps on the porch of the palace. <laughs> he won't go home. So David gets another idea about how to solve this problem. He sends Uriah back to the army with a letter with his general. 
Uriah is actually carrying this letter. He doesn't know what's in it, but he's carrying this letter. And the letter instructs the general to place Uriah in the front lines of the fighting where he will almost certainly be killed. And that is exactly what happens. Uriah is killed in the, very, the very next day in battle. So word comes back to David reporting Uriah's death. And after a time of mourning was complete, David sends for Bathsheba and marries her. Problem solved. Wow, what a terrible story, right? This is not good at all. We've seen flashes of this kind of David before. Remember when, I think it was week two or three, we talked about how David got all upset and gathered all of his merry men and he was on his way to wipe out Nabal and all of the family, right? Because Nabal had, an ins- had insulted David. But we come to this point not prepared for this type of David. What begins as a lustful one-night stand, which is bad enough, ends up in a murder conspiracy of the highest order. It's one of the most well-known stories of sin in the life of a high-profile follower of God in the entire Bible. And so with this story in mind, what I'd like to talk about today is sin. (laughs) Eugene Peterson writes this question about David and this action that he takes, this this uh, scenario that he creates, how does this happen, he writes. As with most, most sins, gradually and unobtrusively. Another commentator I wrote said this, or I read, said this. As I think of what happened, of this I am sure, it did not happen all at once. This matter of Bathsheba was simply the climax of something that had been going on in the heart and life of David for a long time. And A.W. Tozer writes this. Sin has done frightful things to us, and its effect upon us is all the more deadly because we were born in it and scarcely aware of when it is happening to us. Fascinating to think about that in the life of David and what that looks like. We find a lot of stories of uh, humanity and sin in the scriptures, sin stories, We find many in Scripture. We find many in the world around us. We know these, right? We hear about them all of the time. We even have sin stories in our own life. And in most of the sin stories that we experience, whether in Scripture or in the world around us, or maybe even in our own lives, we typically read or experience that there are usually some variations on some very similar themes. Themes like this. Themes like, we want to be God's. Little gods, right? We want to be in control of our, of our things. We usually read this in Scripture as pride. Thanks, God, for what you've done. I know you're calling me to this, live this way, but I think I know better. I'm going this way. See ya, right? We read this as pride. I know better. I'm going to place myself as the ruler of my life and how I live and how I think and how I act. Maybe we want to, we want to take charge of our own lives or we want to assert a controller, we want to, to be in charge of the lives of other people around us. At worst, that can be oppressive. We struggle, maybe, other aspects of sin stories, or we struggle with temptations, temptations that seem, seem maybe alluring, but have devastating effect on our lives because it's contrary to the way of God for us. These are typical themes that we see in, in sin stories all around us, from Scripture to our world to uh, our own lives. 
It is a, a rejection of God and his way of thinking, living, and being. Listen to this. I love this uh, kind of thought about what sin is. It comes from Eugene Peterson again. And he writes this. The basic fundamental condition of our humanity is God. We were created by God. We are redeemed by God. We are blessed by God. We are provided for by God. We are loved by God. Sin is the denial or the ignorance or the avoidance of that basic condition. Sin is the word that we use to designate the perverseness of will by which we attempt being our own gods or making for ourselves other gods. Sin, he writes, isn't essentially a moral term designating items of wrongdoing. It's a spiritual term designating our God avoidance or our God pretensions. Have you ever thought about sin like that before? Incredible. When we read this, uh, this story, we think of this idea of sin. All of us at some level can relate to David. The idea that sin exists and that exists in our lives, we can relate to that. We need to understand and we know and we need to acknowledge that we are sinners. <laughs> That's what we're doing here together. Part of the call of Jesus on our lives and part of our spiritual process as Christians is to work, uh, work out the pattern of rejecting God from our lives. Together, we want to rewrite patterns of our thinking and living and acting to follow Jesus with all of our hearts, not working to avoid him or choose our own way. We want to create patterns of acceptance of God, not rejection or avoidance. We want to work sin out of our lives. Amen? Oh, one commentator, I think, rightly puts this, and this is, this is, this is hard stuff because we don't like this. It's uncomfortable sometimes, so we have to acknowledge this. He writes this, I'm quite certain that until we are prepared to put the label of sin where God puts it, and until our hearts are so broken that we are brought to acknowledge before him that we have failed, there will be no breaking through of the power of God in victory and blessing. The precise details of, the, of, of sin in our life may not correspond exactly to David here, but the presence and reoccurrence of sin is there. And it's important for us to acknowledge that reality. But here's where the story takes a turn, and it actually takes a turn that gives us hope. Because the moment that we recognize our common sin bond with David or with, with anyone else, we're ready for the real surprise in this story. The gospel part of the sin story. <laughs> because there is a gospel part to the sin story. And we don't, don't miss it. God doesn't just want to leave us wallowing in the fact that we have a sin problem. This is where it gets powerful and life-changing. Because the story of the Bible is about how God rescues and redeems. And it doesn't matter what you've done. I need you to hear me say this again. It does not matter what you've done in your life. God is a God of renewal and redemption and invitation into relationship with him. One of my favorite, you've heard me say this quote a lot because it's one of my favorites. I think it's incredibly powerful. We usually hear it around Advent and Christmas time, but it's from one of my favorite authors, 
uh, at least when I was uh, in college, Brendan Manning, and he writes this. Do you believe that God, knowing your whole life story, loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond faithfulness and unfaithfulness, that he loves you without caution or regret, boundary limit or breaking point, no matter what's gone down in your life, he can't stop loving you. So powerful. There's nothing, there's nothing that God can't redeem or restore in our life. So in walks David's pastor, (laughs) the prophet Nathan. And I love this part of the story. We typically focus more on on the David and Bathsheba thing. We've talked about the idea of sin and what that looks like. But this is so powerful, what happens, this encounter with Nathan. And I love what Nathan does here because Nathan essentially is preaching a sermon to David, but David doesn't know it at first. It's genius. He has no idea that he's hearing a message. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, it says this. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that lamb, he raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole for having, and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. <laughs> and I wonder if David's like, he's getting all upset and he's hearing Nathan talk and he's like, yeah, that guy's the worst. He deserves to die. And then Nathan says, you're that man. And he's like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> This is where we see the clear, the gospel focus come into clarity into this story. This is where we see the clear gospel focus come into David's mind. David, the first thing about how the gospel works as it relates to sin is it focuses on you and me. You are that man, David. You are that woman with the problem, the sin problem. The good news of the gospel is that it's first very focused on you and me. The clarity of the gospel is uncomfortable as it puts a mirror in front of us and how we're not following the way of God, but it's necessary. I don't like it. (laughs) But it's first focused on you and me, not some nebulous someone else out there. It's always about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, actual sin. What David thinks uh, he's uh, doing here first is listening to his pastor preach a sermon about somebody else and getting all worked out, uh, worked up about someone else's sin, someone else's plight. And with each additional word here, David becomes more religious, feeling sorry for the poor man who lost the lamb, getting more angry at the rich man who stole that lamb. And perhaps because he's king, perhaps because he has knowledge of who God is and some relationship with him, he begins to feel vastly superior to everyone else around him. And he's absorbed in this huge blur of sentimentality. And then the clear, sudden, gospel-focused, David, I'm talking about you. 
And I wonder if in this moment he, his defenses go down. The adrenaline begins to dissipate and conviction and realization cascade through his heart and his mind and goes straight to his core. The hope of the gospel starts with calling out and recognizing where sin exists in our lives. David is now in the gospel's focus. Will he see it? Will he acknowledge it? And will we see it? And when will we acknowledge it? When this happens in our lives, when the Holy Spirit comes and speaks directly to us, what will we do? I, I, realizing what's going on, I think with a new clarity of mind, he comes face to face with what he's done. And then I think this is why God likes David so much and calls him a man after his own heart, because David quits giving out opinions. <laughs> he, he quits giving out opinions about other people's lives, good or bad. He abandons all of his justifications, and he realizes his position before God, a person in trouble, a person in need. A human being who needs God. And without any more qualification, he looks at Samuel and he says, or, sorry, he looks at Nathan and David confesses, I have sinned, period. You know, one of the most frequently, I think, misunderstood features of the gospel is that a confession of sin isn't an admission that I'm a terrible person. <laughs> In fact, the sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, like David says here, is, such, is so full of hope, right? It's so full of hope because it's a sentence full of recognition of who God is, God's position in the world and in our life, and what God has done. Because what follows the, the recognition of sin uh, is, the most, is the acceptance of the most beautiful invitation that could possibly come, forgiveness. And God is gracious in his invitation of forgiveness. Even in the Christian life, we can't avoid sin completely. We're all human. We know that. We're experiencing that in our own lives, but we see that in the stories of Scripture all over the place. But a primary spiritual task for us is to be open enough to God that we can quickly recognize sin in our life, quickly confess sin, and then quickly receive the grace of God in his forgiveness through faith in Christ. Stories like David set us free from what one commentator said is sin fears, where when sin is discovered in us and our guilty fears often produce a, a sense of condemnation. That's not how God sees us. If we stay with the story of God, if we stay with the David story, if we stay with the Jesus story, before long that sense maybe of condemnation gives way to the surprise realization of grace and mercy and, for, and forgiveness in our lives through faith in Jesus. Praise the Lord. David comes to this moment, I've sinned. David writes about this process that happens in his heart and his mind when he gives over to the Lord here and, and receives this, uh, this grace and mercy and this forgiveness in this moment. He writes about it in Psalm 51, a psalm that we all know very well. He writes, Have mercy on me, O Lord, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then a couple of verses later, this is, we have a song about this, right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. 
Don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me in a willing spirit. (laughs) Under the power of Nathan's preached word, David saw his sin. Praise the Lord. (laughs) He turned back to the Lord. Now, I just want to say, I mean, Bathsheba had been greatly wronged and exploited and demeaned. Uriah had been shamefully treated, deceived, and then killed. The consequences of David's actions, his, the wrongs that he caused, the pain and the suffering and the sin, the consequences of those stayed with David, and they were extreme. If you read the story, the consequences of his sin would follow David for the rest of his life. But still, in a recognition of his sin and a coming back to the Lord, he was offered forgiveness and grace. One commentator wrote this, David's sin cannot, must not be minimized, but it's minuscule compared to God's salvation from it. Praise the Lord. It's always a mistake, he writes, to concentrate our attention more on our sin than on God's work of forgiveness of our sins. That's the main event. (laughs) That's the story of the Bible. Praise the Lord. David's sin, as enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace. And that can be true in your life as well. It doesn't matter what you've done. We know this to be true in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. It has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Praise the Lord. Do you need to hear that today? Romans 5, 6 through 10 reads like this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This should get you all excited. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) And, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, While we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Praise the Lord. So we're using this David story to highlight the significant aspect of what God does in the heart and mind of a person who, number one, recognizes that we sin, but also recognizes, is willing to let the gospel speak clearly to us and realize what Christ has done for us. This is powerful, life-changing stuff. This particular story about David has so much to teach us, and I pray that as we go from here, that we will be people who are quick to listen to God, quick to recognize the conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts through through the loving Spirit of God, quick to confess our sin, quick to receive the grace of God, and to reorient our lives to building patterns of thinking and action and seeking God and holiness with all that we are. The process of uprooting sin from our life and letting God's Spirit plant love deep in us so that we can love God and each other more and better. We want to, we want to thrive in those types of patterns. 
take some recognition, submission to the Holy Spirit, and a realization of the power of God in this area of our lives. Worship team, would you come on back up? In just a moment, we're going to move to a time of communion. And uh, I would just like to end uh, with this comment uh, from, uh, from one commentator that I read just to, to end our time wrapping this up. He writes this, The gospel comes into focus here. Uh, the gospel comes into focus here not in an accusation but as recognition and invitation. Recognition. I am the one whose, whose, sense, whose sense of sin arouses a sense of God. Invitation. Jesus is the one who presents uh, God to me. I didn't know God was that close, that kindly, or that inviting. And he brings me into personal relationship with him in love and in salvation. I am the one who needs God more than anything. More than pleasure with Bathsheba. More than control over Uriah. God. And Jesus is the one who brings the God that I need. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray.